Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. For today's episode, I talked to Joe Goldman, president of the Democracy Fund. They're a bipartisan foundation established by eBay founder and philanthropist Pierre Omidyar. Part of the organization's remit is to make sure our political system can withstand new challenges. With midterm elections fast approaching, we talked about a few of those challenges. Joe shares some surprising insights from an extensive body of research commissioned by the Democracy Fund. And he has some surprising answers to questions like, is America likely to have a third party? How do religious Trump voters think about race and immigration? You might be surprised at some of the answers. Joe spent his career working to strengthen democratic institutions. I asked him to tell me his story. You know, this set of issues around the health of our political system and and giving people voice has been, from as long as I can remember, what I've cared about. Um, When I was in high school, I actually uh, worked with Uh, a number of teachers from my high school to design a faculty senate that had student representatives and uh, was so concerned about um, kind of it not being a popularity contest for students that I designed an election system in which uh, students got voter state or candidate statements without the names of the candidates Um, and so uh, anyways this is something I cared a lot about I, I was more enthusiastic about that system uh, until I lost that election. But, uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, uh, my professional career uh, prior to joining the world of philanthropy was um, was all about public deliberation, right? How do you take policy issues that are stuck, bring large, diverse groups of people together to try to find common ground in a way that their voices can impact policymaking? Um, I did that inside and outside of government mostly with a nonprofit called America Speaks, which would organize these massive town meetings that would bring thousands of citizens together to try to find common ground on policy issues. Um, I did that work for a long time and left it kind of feeling like that's important and the challenges facing the country are even greater. Um, Connected with this uh, wonderful uh, uh, visionary leader, uh, Pierre Omidyar, and uh, decided to kind of create a new philanthropic entity to really focus in on the the health of American politics. Um, You know, it's it's having spent my career working on these kinds of issues, I feel like, um, you know, I used to tell people what I did for a living. I'm trying to save our democracy, strengthen our democracy, that kind of thing. And um, the answer I used to get was, oh, that's cute, right? Uh, (laughs) That's really sweet that you're trying to make our political system work better. Um, It's different now. Mm -hmm. I think the the way that people think about our democracy has changed over the last few years that has made what we do at the Democracy Fund just existentially um, important for a whole lot of people. Mm. Um, Tell us a story about when it worked right. Like maybe from your previous experience when you got people together. Um, This is sort of in the category of uh, inspiration and hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think we all need uh, to find ways to be hopeful these days. so uh, after Hurricane Katrina, um, you may recall kind of the first couple recovery planning plans failed, right? People were so angry and distrustful yeah. about um, government and about kind of plans for the future. Um, and so I came in with my colleagues at America Speaks to convene a series of um, large-scale uh, public forums where 
you know, at that point, half the city had not returned to this to, to New Orleans yet. So people were still out in Houston and Dallas and Baton Rouge. Um, and so we convened several thousand New Orleanians across more than 20 different uh, communities simultaneously connected by interactive television. So everybody in each site was sitting at a round table with a facilitator talking to a diverse group of people about the future of the city that they loved. Mm. And then we used different kinds of technology to connect the sites such that over the course of a day, we could actually figure out where there was convergence. Mm. And we did that a couple times, and um, it was really a remarkable experience. You know, people would look up on these big screens at the front of the room and see a relative in Dallas who they had thought was no longer living, or, you know, who they had not heard from. It was just a remarkable emotional experience. Um, and, you know, everything is not fixed, everything is not perfect in New Orleans, but um, by bringing people together, we were able to kind of create a sense of consensus around the recovery plan that allowed the federal government to release money, that allowed a whole range to, to move forward with that recovery process. And it really, for me, showed what it means to connect kind of public will with um, with the political decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Interesting, your story is around a natural disaster. Yes. Working in government, I'm thinking back, I worked with Gene Shaheen, now mm-hmm. a U.S. Senator, Governor of New Hampshire. And uh, I remember early in the administration, she said, if we get anything right, it's got to be disasters. That's right. when people actually care about what the government's doing, and they actually it becomes very visible. Yeah. Um, sort of the government infrastructure and what it does is often invisible. And it's these moments that people really see that it matters. Yeah, there are all there are so many little touch points that people have with with government that makes a difference. Waiting in line at the DMV, how the post mm-hmm. office works, um, am I getting my benefit checks? Um, but there are these moments in time when public attention is focused, and it's really important that government is able to step up at those, those times. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Democracy Fund has articulated what you call a healthy democracy framework. Yeah. Um, it says in a healthy democracy, people, among other things, people have the information they need to hold their leaders accountable and to actively participate in public life. The public is confident its voice is being heard and democratic institutions are faithfully and effectively serving the nation's best interests. Um, does that describe America today in any way? <laughs> um, you tell me. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, I, I think I think it's not news to anybody where, wherever you sit across the political spectrum that um, that America is not kind of living up to what we think of as a healthy political system. There, are, there is no shortage of reasons to be deeply concerned about the state of affairs. That said. I think often in these kinds of conversations, people romanticize the past, that there was some golden age in which our political system, our democracy, was working as it was supposed to be, right? That, that we were much, much closer to a government of, by, and for the people than, than we are today. It is absolutely the case that we have a lot of problems today. I do not believe there was a golden period of, of American democracy, right? There, there are periods in which polarization was less, but at the you know part of part of the downside of that was you didn't see action on things like civil rights right mm-hmm. um, so you know I, I do want to kind of caution uh, uh, how we talk about this moment um, 
But it is absolutely the case that our political system has shown itself to be far more fragile than I think any of us wanted to acknowledge or recognize. Um, a lot of the things that we talk about today as real threats to our political system are things that I think we, we all thought are things that happen in other countries, right? The, the, it happens over there. It's not, we don't worry about um, demagogues taking over the federal government. We don't worry about um, uh, basic questions of rule of law. Um, and those kinds of questions are coming up now. I, am, I, I sent a note uh, not too long ago to my uh, faculty advisor from undergrad uh, thank, thanking him for teaching me the Federalist Papers, right? Oh. <laughs> which, you know, I thought the Federalist Papers were an abstract principle that I needed to care about, not something I needed to mm. actively be studying. Um, we are we are in a difficult moment. And, you know, part of why I think the work of the Democracy Fund is so important is I, I think it is incumbent on all of us to stand up for our democratic norms and institutions in this moment uh, most of all, philanthropy. You know, everything that philanthropy cares about, whether it is the environment or um, uh, or equity issues or housing, all of this depends on a government that functions and a political system that raises up the voices of all the American people, right? And if we can't have faith in our political system, um, it's going to mean all sorts of problems for a lot of things that philanthropy cares about. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about what people of philanthropy can do. Um, on one hand, there's a lot of people, the solutions they see to the problems we have is getting people to vote. Mm. Um, and that's one thing in civic engagement like that. What else comes to the top of the list for you in terms of what people in philanthropy should be thinking about? Yeah, there, there is no shortage of, uh, right. of things that, that uh, need to be worked on. And um, we've done a lot... We've, we've hosted a series of sessions with the Giving Pledge and, and with other kind of venues for philanthropists to talk about the different options for getting involved. Um, you know, high on my list beyond voting in elections. Well, let me, let's me let start with voting in elections, yep. right? It's not just about helping people to turn out to vote. We need to worry about the security of our elections, mm-hmm. right? Th- these range of problems related to hacking and technology and all, all of that. There's a lot that philanthropy can do on that topic that it has not been in recent years. Um, uh, we need to worry about kind of issues related to misinformation, right? What is what is the role that that kind of civil society can play in relation to the social media companies to ensure that people are getting the information they need and that we are kind of reducing the the level of misinformation that is reaching folks um, related to um, uh, misinformation, right? Journalism matters, right? The fourth estate um, matters both in terms of how the people are able to hold government accountable. Um, it matters in terms of the quality of our public conversation. Um, and you know, we all we all know the the story about journalism, right? Over the last ten to twenty years, the number of uh, of journalists who have lost their jobs is astounding. The number of newspapers that have been shuttered, especially at the local level, remarkable. And that leaves a big hole in our public life. And there's a lot that philanthropy can do on that set of issues. Um, government accountability, right? How do we ensure uh, that the appropriate mechanisms are in place to make sure that government is transparent and accountable to the public, um, especially at a time where there are significant reasons to be concerned about executive branch abuses? It's really important that there are a vibrant field of uh, government watchdogs that, 
use um, investigations, uh, legal tools, a, a wide array of, of resources uh, in order to make sure that government is, is held accountable. Um, and you know where I what I also might kind of draw folks' attention to, which which I think a lot many folks across philanthropy have been um, suddenly kind of turning uh, their eyes to is is the census, mm-hmm. right? Right now um, there is a, a pretty um, uh, significant reason to be concerned about the degree to which the decennial census is going to ac- actually be able to accurately count the American public, you know, at a time when the census is underfunded, when they are um, trying out new technology for the first time that they've not adequately tested, and in which significant um, uh, populations within the American public uh, do not trust the federal government, um, expecting that you know a Latino uh, family is going to go online to share their information in the census, given the current political climate, it's concerning. And how the census works uh, shapes how many congressional seats are, are given to, to each uh, district. It shapes public services. It shapes a whole wide range of things. It, it is kind of the basis for all sorts of elements of our government. And philanthropy has a big role to play to ensure that every person is counted. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to. Dig I could in. keep on going. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I want to dig into a couple. A lot of our listeners are interested in these issues and in philanthropy, and in communications and journalism mm. and those sorts of topics that you were touching on. Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be interesting to dig into a couple of them. And I think talking about the census and people's lack of confidence or fear about it, and and election security. Yeah. Um, I've been in, uh, in rooms with folks trying to deal with these issues. And some debate over, well, if we talk too much about election security and yeah. potential problems, that might discourage people from voting. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that particular topic? Um, it's something my team spends a lot of time talking about and, and thinking about. Um, and, you know, we think that there's a time to really focus on um, what may be a crisis and what the challenges are. And there's a time to just focus on getting it right and not kind of spend a lot of uh, attention on the the dangers um Mm -hmm. so you know a year ago it was a time when you could do things to make sure that our elections are more secure six months ago even as we actually get into the the weeks leading up to an election um there's not that much more that you can do so i think that's the point where the headlines don't need to read about why this system might be vulnerable, um, what we need to do is make sure people are voting and make sure that um, post-election audits and other kinds of things are in place to um, catch problems if they did occur. Um, But yeah, I think we always need to balance this this, um, tension between making sure that people are appropriately um, skeptical about the degree to which their voices are being heard, the degree to which government is serving them, and at the same time, uh, not reducing core trust in the system such yeah. that our democracy can't function. Yeah, that is one of the balancing acts, I yeah. guess. You yeah. know, we're trying to get people to participate, but when they're cynical or skeptical or even afraid of participating, that's a big obstacle. Yeah, and we don't want to give people false faith, right? We don't want to say to people, trust this system that you can't, that you shouldn't trust, right? Mm-hmm. To the extent, you know, I think. We need to learn from uh, 
financial and other systems that have had to deal with these kinds of problems. So we, we need to be transparent about where there are vulnerabilities. We need to be transparent about what the risks and problems are while sending a strong message about the importance of these systems and the things about them that we can have trust in, right? My, my elections team is, I think, unique within the philanthropic world in that um, it is made up primarily of um, kind of election administration nerds, right? Mm-hmm. People, who, yep. people who enjoy going to a DMV conference because the <laughs> DMV actually plays a big role in terms of how people are registered to vote. Right. Right. Um, when you get your license. Yeah. Driver's I mean, license. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, the degree to which a state enforces motor voter laws, the degree to which the state's DMV has the technical systems to be in conversation with the, the voting uh, offices, mm-hmm. like that level of bureaucratic detail matters a lot. It, in some cases, it matters more than the presence of a voter ID law or something like that, mm. right? And, um, you know, the the experience of the Democracy Fund's election administration team is that there are countless um, bureaucrats down from from the federal level to the the county level to the to the the a small village in Idaho, um, who care a lot and have a great deal of pride in how their elections work. And they spend, you know, they spend years preparing for one day, right? Um, And so, you know, I think we want to be able to tell the story about these public servants who are not in it for partisan reasons and really just want to make the election system work. Um, And I think by telling that kind of story, it does give people some sense of faith that um, this is a system that can work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, on the topic of misinformation, mm. and you mentioned right after that journalism, which yeah. some people think is misinformation. <laughs> Those dynamics, again, for people particularly interested in communications yeah. and the, the intersection of all of this. Um, let's talk about the things undermining confidence in information. Yeah. So on the on one side, uh, I was at a conference recently, um, and one of the speakers talked about artificial intelligence mm. used as a propaganda weapon in the form of bots, yeah. which you know send out tens of thousands of tweets an hour, which are not coming from human beings, but from well, they are they originate with a human being, mm. um, meant to disinform or distract, um, to sow division in society. 50,000 tweets an hour being driven by computers. And that's sort of on the social media world. So people are starting to see or wonder, is this even real, what I'm getting? Mm. And then, of course, on the journalism side, journalism uh, under attack. Um, Anybody, any news you don't agree with, some will call fake news. Sure, Um, What about that dynamic? How do we address these dynamics? (laughs) Another easy one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, look, I... I think you got to both appreciate how all of these different pieces are connected together and kind of take them one at a time, right? So there's a set of issues around the social media platforms themselves. And, um, you know, I think what is most challenging about the social media platforms is, you know, 
this sound, sounds trite, but but it is their scale, right? When when you meet with folks at Facebook and talk about how they can change their platform, you can see as you're talking about different things they could do, they are calculating mm. how does this play out in Egypt huh. and how does this play out in France and how does this play out in, you know... Uh, Global because, right, yeah, no, because their platform is such that every tweak they make has all sorts of implications in widely different contexts. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I have some level of sympathy for the, I, you know, I think there are a lot of really good people inside these companies that are trying to do the right thing, and they have a very challenging uh, job to do. Um, and, you know, for for those of us who have been concerned about money and politics and the influence of, of powerful interests on our democracy, like there is no set of actors that are more powerful in this moment than these social media companies. And I think it is deeply important that civil society start paying attention. And, and or in the last two years, civil society has suddenly started paying attention to these issues. But um, we need to start uh, applying pressure where needed about how the platforms need to change their behavior um, and government needs to be stepping up to the plate. Um, beyond, and, and there are lots of things that we can do within civil society to um, seed the kinds of solutions that could be applied by the social media platform. So as an example, the Democracy Fund has been a longtime supporter of the kind of fact-checking movement within journalism, mm-hmm. right? Which fact-check factcheck.org, PolitiFact, that there are a number of organizations that have been kind of pioneers in that field for a long time. And we've been, um, for at least five years, been working to kind of take that work to the next level. Um, the existing, uh, the existence of the fact checkers was not a terribly satisfying solution when the way they were delivering their fact checks was through this website called factcheck.org. It's a different thing when this is a vibrant field that then can be a resource for the social media platforms, Mm. right? And, you know, we spent years building up the fact-checking movement and not knowing that it was a really good tool for then Facebook to turn to as they were trying to deal with misinformation issues. Um, So I think philanthropy and the civic sectors ability to kind of think ahead about kinds of solutions that can deal with these these issues um, uh, can be a, a great resource as they get incorporated into these platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, you know, journalism matters here. And, you know, in the way, same way that I, I said we shouldn't romanticize, you know, a golden age of democracy, I think we should be careful about romanticizing a golden age of journalism. <laughs> right. Right? There, there are things that journalism has done well and matters a lot for democracy. Mm-hmm. And there are things that it has always done a really poor job at. And one of those things it's done a poor job at is building a trusted relationship with its readers. Mm-hmm. Right? The attitude of many kind of old school journalists is, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Um, right. And as journalists... Um, grow more separation between them and the communities that they are covering, um, the level of distrust, I think, grows, right? Um, Charlie Sykes, who has been a kind of 
outspoken, uh, who's a conservative commentator from Wisconsin, longtime um, uh, uh, talk show host, um, uh, and kind of helped build up the conservative movement in Wisconsin, and who has since 2016 been kind of an outspoken critic of both the role of media in um, the spread of misinformation, but also Donald Trump and, and his role in politics and, and in the Republican Party. Um, you know, Charlie talks about how, you know, in Wisconsin, the major television stations are, you know, they're they're based and headquartered in Madison and Milwaukee, and that's where the journalists are from. Mm-hmm. And it's not all that surprising that if you live outside of Milwaukee and Madison, your level of trust, your 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 ability to look at these folks covering your state and say they know who I am, yep. they know what matters to me, and I can trust what they're telling me, really gets reduced. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot that philanthropy can do, and, and um, you know, the Knight Foundation, the Democracy Fund, the Hewlett Foundation, many others have, have been working on these issues. Um, there's a lot that can be done to help journalism find its new business model, right? Journalism is in a state of disruption. Its business model has collapsed. That's a, that's a threat, but it's also an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a role for philanthropy to play to help journalism find new business models that, um, that create a closer connection between journalists and their readers. Mm-hmm. Um, a quick follow-up on that, see how you, what do you think about this one? <laughs> that same conference I told you about, yeah. where I heard about weaponized artificial intelligence propaganda, yeah. a social scientist talked about what she called reality apathy yeah where people are so confused um and turned off by what they're being bombarded with both on the social media side and also what we're talking about here sort of disconnection or lack of trust in me that they're just tuning out Mm. um any thoughts on that in terms of how to counteract that sounds like what you're talking about could address that if we're if the social media and journalism companies are doing a better job in building trust and connection with people. Yeah, I mean, so if I go back to my experience in the world of public deliberation, right, convening Mm -hmm. people to come together and talk about issues, you know, my commitment was always to to create venues that had demographically representative groups of citizens, right? The people that I was attracting to the forums that I was organizing, I didn't want just the professional citizen who shows up to every meeting, right? And that meant spending a lot of time thinking about how do you talk to people about why showing up matters? Mm. And, you know, my experience is people have a lot of reason to be cynical about public process, whether it is is my vote going to matter? Is my reaching out to my member of Congress going to matter? Is my showing up to this town hall meeting going to matter? Right, because they have they have gone through so many cycles where they have, you know, they've put out right. They've they've shown up. They've done something, yep. and it's resulted in nothing. Mm. Right, and you know, I think the the solution to apathy, and I I don't even like using the word apathy very yep. much, but um, uh, apathy suggests it's just this passive thing. I think it's right. often it's it's an active decision, right? It's yep. it's a rational calculus, mm-hmm. um, and I think the 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 right response is to be able to show people why participating actually matters 
um, and then to be able to deliver on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that is what matters a lot. Yeah. I would imagine some Trump voters think they've had some impact. They're voting. Absolutely. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity that for, for Trump voters who perhaps felt most alienated from the system, in this moment, maybe they're a little more open to mm -hmm. conversations about what it means to to join the public conversation and and to to engage in um, in constructive processes to to make our political system work better because they they're in a position where maybe they don't feel that they've been completely pushed out right they've they voted and they they saw something happen as a result. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so speaking of Trump voters, that's a good segue. Yes. We promised some surprising, counterintuitive insights yeah. from some studies you all have supported. And that work is done through your voter study group, yeah. I believe. What's the voter study group? So my, I, I think like a lot of people, my experience of the 2016 election was um, confusing for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I tend to have a, a, a fair level of... Uh, confidence in my ability to kind of read a political situation and anticipate what's happening next. And with all humility, I feel like I've been wrong so many times over the last couple of years about what's going to happen, um, that it has raised some pretty fundamental questions for me about, about my ability to understand what's going on in the country. Um, and in, in that period during the, um, the 2016 primaries, when, you know, we were seeing suddenly Donald Trump looked like he had a real chance at getting the Republican nomination, and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were in a what seemed like a pretty tight uh, uh, contest on the Democratic side. You know, I, I started asking some pretty big questions about what is kind of driving this kind of populist energy in the country, and especially on the Republican side, I, I started. Uh, going around D.C., uh, meeting with conservative pollsters and political consultants and public opinion experts to just say, like, what's 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 going on here? And right. I was often met with this kind of deer in headlights look like people clearly <laughs> had yeah. no idea, like the folks who should know had no idea. And um, one of the meetings I went to was at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a conservative think tank who, who we actually fund, um, uh, I was meeting with one of our grantees there having this conversation and they said, uh, you should really talk to this guy, Henry Olson, who is a um, conservative public opinion expert um, that has written a lot about kind of different factions within the Republican Party. And um, at the time, Henry and I had a pretty similar concern that regardless of how the election turned out, Washington was was going. Washington was going to do one of two things. The most likely was Washington was going to pretend that nothing happened and that this is just kind of politics as usual. Mm. The other was uh, Washington was going to kind of retreat to the common explanations that it uses for why things are happening in unexpected ways yep. that is not necessarily grounded in any data. Um, yep. And so we decided to create this thing we call the Voter Study Group, and it had four kind of key elements, right? One is we reached out to public opinion experts from across the political spectrum. So 
we've got folks from the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute. Um, we had somebody from Heritage Action early on, you know, on the right side. And then on the left, we had folks from the Center for American Progress and Brookings and New America, and in the middle, you know, the Pew Research Center, right? And the notion is these people are never going to agree on what is best for the country, mm -hmm. but they can agree on the questions that we have about what's going on, and they can agree to study the data together. Yep. And the advantage of having a diverse group of public opinions, uh, opinion experts together is when you produce a report that you want to reach political leaders and policy leaders, they can look across this group and see someone they trust, yep. right? And so to the extent that part of what we want to do is ensure that political leaders are better, more grounded in data about how the country is changing, we've got that. The second piece we did was create data sets that have really high quality. So um, the first survey that we did was of 8,000 people. Um, the subsequent ones that we've done have been five or 6,000, right? So very large uh, data sets. That means we've got a lot of statistical power. And designed surveys using a longitudinal tool. What, what that means is we are interviewing people who have been interviewed multiple times. They were interviewed in 2011, 2012. Mm. They've been interviewed in 2016, 2017, 2018. So when we ask them questions, we don't need them to remember how they voted years ago. We know not just how they voted years ago, but what they thought about immigration, mm. what they thought. So we're able to um, talk about how the polity is changing based on real data. Um, and the final thing about the voter study group is we make all of our data available, right? And so um, we have been, I think, since uh, since the election, we've put out maybe 20 reports um, on everything from uh, how to think about the Republican electorate and the different kinds of Trump voters, because they're not all the same right. kind of person, um, to trends in authoritarianism and the degree to which we should be concerned that the public is growing more authoritarian. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people are scrambling for pens to write <laughs> down where they can find that. Is that democracyfund.org? Uh, no, well, you could get 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 it through there, but um, voterstudygroup.org voter will, uh, will get you to all of our reports and all of our data. Great. So let's hear some, let's do the religious Trump voters. You did a study on that. Tell us about that. What was the surprising insight? Yeah. So we actually, we just put out um, four or five reports today, in fact. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure when folks are listening to this, but... Um, <laughs> As we speak, it's uh, today. Yeah. So uh, Emily Eakins of the Cato Institute um, uh, has written a series of fascinating reports for us. Um, the one that we put out today was looking at how religious observance amongst Trump voters affects views on diversity, right? And, you know, depending on what your stereotypical views are of evangelical uh, uh, voters of, 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 of religion, um, this may be surprising, it may not be. Um, it was a little bit surprising to me. So what we saw was that Trump voters who attend church regularly are far more likely than non-religious Trump voters to have warm feelings about racial and religious minorities, to be more supportive of immigration, to be more concerned about poverty. Um, they had more favorable views of African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, Jews, immigrants. Um, to, to take one kind of data point, 
So Trump voters who never attend church, um, 48% of them have favorable attitudes towards African Americans. Um, weekly churchgoers amongst week, weekly Trump church voters uh, have 72% have favorable views towards African Americans. 80% if you attend church more than once a week, right? So we're, we're clearly seeing a pretty substantial effect. And 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 on the flip side, you know, a quarter of those who never or seldom attend church among Trump Trump voters say that being white is extremely important to their identity. Um, that compares to just 14% of weekly churchgoers and 9% of those who attend church more than once a week. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at a time when um, religious observance and um, church attendance is declining, um, it raises some pretty profound questions about what are the other kinds of mediating institutions that might be able to step in to the extent that um, religious institutions continue to be in a state of decline. So I think really, really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I could see a lot of people being surprised in part because the, I guess I'll call it conventional wisdom or the stereotype or the big idea about Trump voters, quote unquote, yeah. is that in fact they're defined by actually <laughs> everything that's not being said there, that yeah. defined by racial or ethnic animosity, that sort of thing. I know for me, understanding that it's the Republican electorate voted for Trump. Yeah. So by definition, most Republicans who voted in that election are yeah. Trump voters. How do you see that? Yeah, so um, I'd say a, a couple things about that and drawing from our voter study group data. Um, so one, um, one report that, that actually Emily uh, Eakins also wrote for us, um, one of our first reports was dividing the Trump electorate into five different groups, right? And so um, I, I can't off the top of my head name the five, the five different groups, but yep. um, there's essentially a couple who they're diehard Republicans, but the reason they voted for Trump was because they, they hate Hillary Clinton, yep. right? right. Um, and they actually, their views towards uh, racial minorities to Muslims that um, doesn't look all that different from Democrats, right? Hmm. Um, but there are other groups within that uh, that electorate. And to, to tie Emily's um, report to another report that was written by a guy named John Sides, who's a professor at George Washington University and is the, the research director for the voter study group. Um, so what he saw, uh, a couple things that are interesting, right? One is um, when he looked at... Um, the issues that made the marginal difference for those who flipped their vote from Obama to Trump mm. didn't have anything to do with the economy. What it had to do with um, was immigration and attitudes towards uh, Muslims, mm. right? Um, uh, I think maybe a bit also kind of attitudes towards African Americans. But like when you look at the marginal uh, uh piece of the electorate that made the difference in yeah. the election, um, that separated it from uh, a Romney-Obama to a, a, a Clinton-Trump, it is those sets of issues. So without a doubt, um, this kind of lack of tolerance and um, discomfort with diversity and pluralism um, can be found within the Trump electorate, yeah. and um, especially amongst these kind of Obama-to-Trump voters, right. which 
is all the more surprising, right? Because these folks voted for, for Obama, voted right. for an African American yeah, president, yeah. Right? right? And I think what what the academics will tell you is um, the the kind of axis on which the election was being um, contested shifted when from 2008 the axis was much more economic, right? Yeah. And and you had a number of folks who may have been culturally conservative, but voted for a Democrat because they were focusing on more economic issues. And when the axis changed, when when the, the kind of forefront issue was um, threats by Muslims and, and immigration and the kinds of things that Donald Trump was most talking about in the election, this, this, per, this percentage of the electorate moved from, uh, from being Obama Democrats to becoming Trump Republicans. And that's where you see some of the most concerning um, uh, behaviors uh, along those lines. And mm-hmm. this is a sidetrack from your original question, but I also yeah. think totally fascinating yeah. uh, in terms of the research. So, um, so I wrote a report for the voter study group along with a guy named Lee Drutman, who's at New America, and um, uh, Larry Diamond, who's a professor at Stanford. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, at Stanford. And um, what we were looking at were kind of authoritarian attitudes amongst the public. And um, the kind of shocking headline that that comes came out of that report was about 25% of the public, when you ask them about, you know, would military rule be a good thing? Would um, a strong leader who doesn't have to worry about Congress or elections be a good thing? About a, about a quarter of the public says yes to one of those two options. American public. Yeah, yeah. this <laughs> yeah. is American general public. This right. is not Trump voters, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that that's just take that in. That's that's shocking. Um, but when you look deeper into that, and you look at that question being asked over time, so that there's a there's an operation called the World Values Survey that has been asking literally those questions since 1995. Yeah. And what you actually see is that those numbers are lower than they were <laughs> um, a bit ago. Right. Uh, yeah. In 1995, the numbers were about the same as they are today. Hmm. Between 1995 and 2011, they were progressively increasing to a point where I believe the 2011 number was around 30%. Hmm. Um, saying yes to yet yeah, a strong leader who doesn't have to worry about Congress or elections would, would, would be a good thing. Now, the, the really counterintuitive thing here is um, the ideological differences that have shifted over time. This is, this is not something that I certainly expected, but when you look historically at the data, when those questions were asked, it was either a pretty bipartisan mix that was saying those things are a good thing, or... Democrats were a little higher on the, those numbers yeah. until this recent survey, right? So it and the, and this was replicated. Pew Pew did the same thing, and they had the same finding that we did. Yeah. When we asked in 2017 these questions about strong leaders, suddenly um, 30 percent of Republicans were saying a strong leader who doesn't have to worry about Congress and elections is a good thing, right. and the Democratic number was down to like 18 yeah, percent. Right. And so what, what you were actually seeing happening was um, uh, Republicans, well, this is our interpretation of what we saw happening. Yeah. Republicans seeing a authoritarian leader in Donald Trump kind of saying, hey, let's, let's empower him. And do his thing. Um, and some Democrats who had previously 
been kind of flirting with you, who were frustrated with our democracy, frustrated with our government, mm. and maybe were were saying maybe this is okay. Suddenly, they're kind of looking out and seeing Donald Trump and 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 changing their position. Um, so, um, and to bring it back to my the earlier point, where you see the greatest authoritarian attitude, it again is those Obama to Trump voters, huh. right? So these folks who had been in the Democratic coalition, um, economically uh, more progressive, socially more conservative, that left the Democratic Party to come to the Republican Party, they're also the ones who are most authoritarian, hmm. most uh, uh, have most the most negative views towards racial minorities, those kinds of things. Right? A lot of that is counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of, uh, we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast with people who study public opinion and dynamics like these. Um, and it really helps you get beyond the surface, get yeah. past your assumptions, particularly with a really rich longitudinal, you know, in-depth data set like you have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, Pete, like we said before, that is at voterstudygroup.org. Yeah. Uh, let's do another one. Um, <laughs> there's one called Spoiler Alert about yeah third parties, and I know from the conversations I have, particularly with young people, like my own kids in their 20s, uh, they're looking for something else, right? They're kind of done with the Democrats and Republicans. What did you all study and what did you find? Yeah, so we just put out a report again today um, that was written by uh, three authors, um, uh, Lee Drutman from New America, Bill Galston um, from uh, the Brookings Institution, uh, and a guy named Todd Lindbergh, uh, who's at the Hudson Institute. Um, so ideologically a very diverse uh, set of authors. Um, so the thing that I think fits into the current narrative is the the desire for a third party is historically extremely high, mm -hmm. right? 68% uh, of Americans say they would like there to be a third party. Wow, okay. Yep. Um, so without a doubt, there is a kind of dissatisfaction with the current system. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't want the same third party, right? So um, what we saw was that a third want a party in the center, and that's what you tend to hear about when people talk about third parties. Yeah. But uh, about 20% want a party that is to the left of the Democrats, and another 20% want a party that is to the right of the Republicans. So you know what people want is a five-party system, not a three-party <laughs> system, right? right. And the, the kind of added piece is that um, we also asked people a battery of questions about their level of support for or an array of reforms that would make it more likely for a third party to be able to emerge. Ranked choice voting, multi-member districts, those kinds of things. And um, without any exception, people either have never heard of those things yeah. or they are pretty resistant to them. Hmm. So on one hand, you have people saying they want a third party, but a lot of dissonance in terms of what they want in that party. Yeah. And you have uh, very uh, mixed or low support for the kinds of reforms that would need to be in place in order to get to that point, which is different than saying, could a third party candidate emerge in a given presidential election because the, a confluence of factors come together in terms of who the Democrats nominate, who the like I, I don't I don't know that we can speak too greatly to the possibility of a third party candidate being successful in one context or another, whether it's at the presidential level or gubernatorial. Um, 
but the likelihood of a third party emerging in the near term seems pretty pretty low. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we could go on all day. <laughs> and I know our folks who listen to this podcast would love to go on all day. Um, but let's suffice or leave it at check out voterstudygroup.org um, where you will have a lot of data you can uh, comb through and play with. And if you want to learn more about the Democracy Fund's work, you can check out their website. And I'll ask Joe, um, A, to come back. <laughs> I know people want to hear more from you. It's fascinating work and a fasc- really important topic. Um, but we like to end our conversations with a question about innovations and trends. Mm. So from your perspective, we've talked about civic engagement and democracy and communications in its various forms. Mm. Um, so what's an innovation or trend in any of that um, mm. that you're keeping your eye on that you think our listeners should know about? Mm. Um, that's a good question. There, there are so many that are out there that are, that are deeply important. Um, you know, I think that um, to me, you know, if I, if I take where, where I live, uh, which is the world of philanthropy, and I, I think many of your li- listeners may as well, yep. um, I think it's really interesting to see foundations experimenting with new ways to be impactful, um, uh, to not just see themselves as um, a checkbook that supports a set of grantees, but to experiment with ways that they can use new legal vehicles to engage in advocacy, ways that they can play different kinds of convening roles, ways that they can um, that they can participate in the field in, in, uh, in different uh, fashions. Um, and I think that's really important in terms of um, the challenges that face us, right? I think our, our point of view at the Democracy Fund is, you know, let's, let's look at the nature of the problems that we're facing um, and let's look at what the needs are, and then let's design around it, right? What what the field can supply and what what roles we need to play. And I think having that kind of flexibility within within uh, philanthropy is a really important uh, trend to continue to watch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, sure. and we'll look forward to talking with you sometime in the future. Keep up the great work. Thank you.